0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation
1: Science, logic, reason Do you have any
0: hard data? Now, that's what I call science Hello, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. We cover science, technology, engineering and maths, commonly called STEM. And this week we're putting the E in STEM, which means I'm joined by my expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Leiden. The show is proudly reported by, supported by Edge Radio, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about what they're up to. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people as we record in Lutruwita, and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So as always, Sarah's picked a very interesting topic for us. We're going to be talking about acoustics and engineering of venues. So can you introduce our expert guest and also the topic in a bit more detail, please, Sarah?
1: Okay, so our guest today is Associate Professor Damien Holloway, who's from the School of Engineering at the University of Tasmania. Uh, So Damien's research is incredibly broad and he's done many different things in his um, work career so far, including architectural acoustics, which is what we'll be focusing on today, ship hydrodynamics, structural vibration and structural health monitoring. Damien also is a musician. That, that really informs the work that he's going to be talking about today.
0: Makes a lot of sense. It's good if you can actually think about it from the user's perspective. Usually, sounds like a really diverse career so far, Damien.
2: Um, yeah, well, I don't like sitting still, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a good trait to have. I think in anybody that works in STEM, having a busy mind, wanting to do lots of
2: things.
1: So, Damien, can you tell us a bit about the type of engineering work you do and what inspired you to become an engineer?
2: Started off life as a musician, as mentioned there, and. I I was I sort of wanted something a bit more I guess I felt I needed to be have something a bit more stable so I've always been really loved mathematics at school and I had a couple of flatmates who are engineers and I was thinking of doing a physics degree and they said oh I didn't really know anything about engineering they they said oh why don't you do engineering and that sort of led me down that path and that's what I ended up doing and never looked back I've really enjoyed it so, what do
1: you enjoy most about your engineering work?
2: I work at, as a lecturer at the university, so my work is really research and teaching mainly. And I mean, it sort of surprises me a bit, but I really enjoy working with the students. I, I, I say it surprises me because I'm a, an extreme introvert. I never ever imagined that I'd sort of like working with people so much. But it's, it's just seeing them, seeing the lights go on when I explain things. The challenge of you know when they they have questions when I need to explain something, trying to. Uh, explains some strange concept that in terms in language that, that is, is familiar to them in, in terms of everyday experiences that they might have had before and um, to try and get some complicated concept across and, and it's really, I really enjoy that challenge of getting that message across and s- seeing what happens to the students when they understand.
1: So if you had to describe yourself as one of sort of the main types of engineering, um, so belonging to a category of engineering, which category would you say?
2: Um, Well, uh, my undergraduate degree was civil engineering. I've never really felt like giving myself the name of civil engineer. What I do is a lot broader than that, and so so my PhD kind of already led me into a different direction looking at ship hydrodynamics, which is much more mechanical engineering, looking at vibrations, looking at water waves. It's also a, a specialised branch of engineering called naval architecture deals with that. But it, it did use a lot of the engineering concepts that I learnt in civil engineering. And the acoustics has, I guess, taken me even further. If if I go to an acoustics conference, you know, I I see um c- civil engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, physicists, um psychologists, musicians, architects. It's it's one of those disciplines that that covers so many different different backgrounds and people from all walks of life come into it, and and that's what fascinates me about it too. Is that, that I can you know, bring my own perspectives, my own experiences to that. And I I guess in terms of the the lecturing that I do, the lecturing is mainly in the civil engineering area, but but I have done quite a lot of lecturing in the mechanical engineering area too, in the vibrations. So I I don't like to put a box, a label on myself too much. I just call myself an engineer.
1: Yeah, I think that's really nice, kind of showing how broad engineering is and how um, anyone doing engineering doesn't necessarily have to be pigeonholed into a, a certain type of engineering.
2: Yeah, yeah. You, one tends to think of oneself as being labelled once you get that undergraduate degree, but but so many people I've seen have ended up doing things that are quite unrelated to, to what they studied as an undergraduate.
0: Fantastic. What a diverse career so far. Thanks to Damien. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about engineering. So stick with us for part two. We'll be talking a little bit more about some projects that Damien has worked on.
1: You're listening to that's what I call science, and today we're talking about all things architectural acoustics. Is that the right terminology?
2: Um, yeah, that sounds good.
1: So, my name is Sarah and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest Damien Holloway. So, Damien, in this segment, we want to talk a little bit about a project that you've worked on. So, I believe you've had quite a few different interesting research projects in the architectural acoustics space that. You like to draw on today?
2: Yes so the, the projects I work on are mainly in my role as a supervisor as an academic and, and I've had you know lots of honours projects in this area but but only only one PhD project and um, so far and that that was really really interesting project because a whole lot of things just came together really nice you know, I had exactly the right student to work on it I had the right project I had the right collaborators and you know throughout the project we applied for a couple of small grants and were successful with those everything fell in place and and it just was one of those you know the periods in my career where where I just was doing something I really loved doing and and it all worked. The project was my well she's graduated now my student Lily, Lily Panton, who's now working as an acoustician in Finland, was looking at concert halls stages from the perspective of the performing musician so so a lot of a lot of work in the past on concert halls, a lot of research in acoustics has been from the perspective of the audience. What it is that the audience want out of a concert hall, but it's really only in the last maybe 20, 25 years at the most where the, the first the first studies actually looked at what musicians wanted in a out of the acoustics of a concert hall. And, and being a musician myself, that was also. A, of a lot of interest to me
1: what then are some of the things that an audience would want out of a venue so
2: an audience well you want different things out of different venues it depends on the purpose of the venue so so a, a concert hall normally you want the music to to sound really warm and full sounding um. but you also want to hear the detail you want to hear the clarity you want to be able to hear what's going on which is quite a challenge if you imagine the former situation where you want a full rich sound imagine yourself singing in the shower you know your, b- your bathroom is typically a very resonant space but try to hold a conversation in the bathroom and you know if the words all merge into one another it's very hard to he- hear hard to get that clarity and so very reverberant spaces don't often have the clarity and vice versa things where you can hear the detail don't support the sound don't give you that warmth and so it's quite a challenge to satisfy both at the same time and, and that's often done by, by designing the, the room in such a way that you get a fairly, fairly quick decay in the sound but then there's a long tail to the decay so you get that warmth but at a lower level where it doesn't cover up the detail and, and th- there's some some interesting tricks that you can do to, to get that to happen.
1: So what would some of those tricks be?
2: Um, well, there's um, a, a recently built concert hall... I went to a, a presentation at a conference a couple of years ago uh, on a recently built co- concert hall in Paris, the Philharmonie de Paris. Pardon my French accent. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and the acoustic team on that was actually an, an Australian team or New Zealand-based company, but but the Australian office of that. Um, but they they had the m- the main volume of the concert hall as a there's a sort of reverberant space, but underneath the seating, there are large voids underneath the seating area, and so, and and there are, um, the the two spaces were coupled, so sound could sound energy could move from the main auditorium to the space behind the seats, and it got absorbed fairly quickly in the main concert hall, but the sound behind the seats was, was quite hard reflective surfaces so that kept the sound going so that kept a sort of background level of the sound going but but it's also um there are other things that have been i mean that, that's a fairly modern example the things that we might have been done 20 or 30 years ago which are obviously still relevant today would be to have um Quite a lot of absorption on the back wall of a concert hall, but but reflective surfaces on the sides and on the top of the concert hall, so that you getting, so that everyone in the auditorium gets at least one or two of the early reflections of the of the very first reflections off of the walls gets direct to every seat. Um, th- that's. Um with computer modelling that's gone to extreme lengths. There's a there's a concert hall in I think it's in Beijing, uh, designed by a Melbourne based company. And and if you look at that concert hall, there there's a lot of lot of curved surfaces. Um traditional, you know, halls built in the nineteen sixties, everything's kind of square and and straight lines, but but a lot of modern concert halls have a lot more curved surfaces. And they're actually specifically designed so that sound from certain points on the stage get reflected to uh, every single seat um, and I remember talking to one of the modellers he made sure every single seat had had an early reflection for, um, from one of these curved surfaces.
1: So what types of materials would be used for the sort of reflection surfaces versus the absorption surfaces?
2: I mean re- reflective surfaces um, any kind of hard material would work and um, th- I mean there's a perception that the Timber is, is good for concert halls. Actually, timber normally reflects quite well, so it's not that different to concrete or steel. It just looks a whole lot nicer. So, so it's not hard to get reflections. Um, absorption is a bit different because not everything absorbs in the same way. So cushions, seat covers, that sort of thing, tend to re- absorb high frequencies, and it can be very difficult to... One of the So the high frequencies are often not too difficult to manage, but some of the low frequencies are much harder to manage because you need bigger spaces often panels with holes and with with space behind them and material in those spaces are used to absorb low frequency sound and we want to try in a good hall. we want to try and get a really good balance between the absorption at different frequencies so that it isn't harsh sounding because there's a lot of high frequency or boomy because there's a lot of low frequency so
0: as this field has progressed Damien have the things that have been learned about different materials been applied to older buildings because it sounds like some really exciting technology can be used to design curved buildings and uh, it's much easier to make something new with all of the things we know But have you been involved with any work or know of any work where it's actually applying new materials or new knowledge to existing spaces to improve the quality of the sound
2: yeah, yeah absolutely I mean there are two examples come immediately to mind and one is the Sydney Opera House concert hall um so th- that's been notorious for having dreadful acoustics since it was built
0: really I had no idea Wow, <laughs> that seems very ironic <laughs> uh,
2: and and it's well it, it's, a, it's a huge space and and um, the bigger the space the more challenging it is to to get the acoustics right it's very easy to get good acoustics in a small auditorium of you know maybe a 1, thousand twelve hundred seats but when, once you get up to two thousand seats seated auditorium it's it's very difficult to get Good acoustics because of the much bigger space. Very hard to, hard to control it. And and there's obviously a you know the arts is not funded as, as highly as some people might like it to be. And it, you know it's it's very high, highly subsidized field. So you need bigger. I mean, as modern concert halls are built, they're getting bigger and bigger because you need the patrons to to pay for the the performances. And so while a lot of there are a lot of examples of really good nineteenth century. Auditoriums, but they, they all tend to be small auditoriums. They tend to be what we call a shoebox auditorium. A, it's a sort of rectangular auditorium with sort of slightly deeper than it is, wider. As I said, that's great for 1,200 patrons, but in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we moved into fan-type auditoriums where it was a much, much wider and um, much bigger spaces. So, so the Sydney Opera House wasn't known for its acoustics, but I can't remember, a few years back, not not that long ago, only a few years ago, it's had major revamps to to the auditorium. There are these lights that hung many metres down from the ceiling above the orchestra, and they've redesigned those lights to be reflectors to give the orchestra some feedback on what they're doing, things like that. A- another good example closer to home is, is the Federation Concert Hall has had a major overhaul of its acoustics last year. They've put in a lot of things around the stage again um, surfaces that will reflect sound back to the orchestra to the musicians to give them feedback but they've also put um, some curtains long long slender curtains that can be um, lowered all around all the side walls and I was actually in there last night for the engineering graduation ceremonies and it was an amazing the difference that it was I, I mean, I've been to many graduation ceremonies in the past and barely hear any of the speeches it was all words merging into one another I couldn't make out what was was being said but last night I could hear every word of of the speeches.
0: Well that's incredible isn't it it makes such a big difference with something that I mean to me just sounds like some curtains so it seems like really uh, quite pragmatic as a field that can have a really big influence on the way people experience these essentially public spaces which is really nice.
2: Yeah and and the nice thing about that is it's got variable acoustics which um Increases the functionality of the hall, so it can be used for events like graduation ceremonies where you where it's basically speech you're listening to, and you want the much more emphasis on the clarity, the shorter reverberation times, but that concert hall can be also configured in different configuration for live orchestral music or things like that, where you want different kinds of acoustics and the the curtains can be individually raised and lowered so that you can vary it in different ways.
0: that's really cool. So you can like optimize the space essentially for the type of performance that's being undertaken at the time. If you're clever with the types of materials you use and the layout of your building, from the yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: that's awesome. So we've talked a bit about how audience experiences of music and speech in a auditorium. You know the factors that affect that. What about for musicians? How is that different?
2: Well, for the musicians, one of the things they have to do is to play together. So the not only the clarity i mean obviously they need the warmth too it's really hard to play make a good sound if you don't feel the sound is supported so you need that warmth you need the clarity you need to be able to hear everyone else but you need to have quite immediate feedback so it's no point having the clarity if it, if there's a too much of a delay and because you need to play together and even even when you're working with a conductor you don't just follow the conductor you you listen to everything that's around you to, to play together so so a lot of the work that Lily was doing in her PhD was aimed r- around the the early reflections, and in particular, looking at the direction of those early reflections and and the timing of those early reflections. So how soon do you get those? How soon do you get that feedback? So we were looking at measuring reflections in the first twenty to fifty milliseconds. That's that's one fiftieth of a second, down to one twentieth of a second. What's made this possible is. We use this thing called an eigenmicro... Uh, it's a spherical microphone array with 32 microphones on it. I mean, th- these have been around for a while, but th- the signal processing, th- the processing of the data from those microphone arrays, I, I mean, it's it's like having a you know, a CD can hold about 75 minutes worth of music. But if you've got 32 instead of two microphones, instead of ser- stereo, you've got 32 channels. You'd need 16 CDs for... Know, a long symphony that's the amount of data we're talking about and co- the computing power and the technology in in processing that has sort of advanced to the point where it's really now quite plausible to to look at those um early reflections and the and how they how they occur in the different frequencies in the high frequencies and in the low frequencies and and we she looked at in particular the the, the ratio of reflections from the sides um, to the reflections from above and it turns out that musicians like reflections from the sides. The reflections from above don't seem to help as much as reflections from the side. Perhaps that's because you know we, the direct sound that we're hearing is from the so- sides. Perhaps it's because our ears are designed to to pick up direction in the horizontal plane rather than in the, the vertical plane because the two ears are side by side, not one on top of the other. And that that helps us to you know we probably need to know where the sound is coming from as well as as well as hearing it that's so i think that's the one of the key things there
0: so when you're doing this kind of research do you try and manipulate the way that the sound is moving and then ask the musicians to provide feedback on whether or not they like that um or like how do you how did you come to the idea that they like it from the side rather than the top?
2: Okay, that, that, that's a really good question, and there have been some studies, that, some studio studies in the US where they've basically done that, and some what we call auralisation studies where musicians play by themselves with headphones, but that that's not a very realistic situation. We wanted to, to study this in a much more realistic situation, so... We collaborated with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, and they do concert tours. They had a. We sort of looked at their schedule a couple of years ahead, and and they had a concert tour lined up where they were going to, to all the major Australian capital cities and playing in the major venues in those cities. And importantly, also playing the same music, and you know one or two days later, each each concert, which is really good for this kind of study because um, our oral memory is very, very poor. We, it's very difficult people don't tend to remember, you know, days or weeks ahead of, of what an experience was unless it's really conscious in their mind. So, you know, every day or two they're doing the same music in all the major venues and we gave them surveys to fill in and they rated each of the venues on a whole lot of different scales, sort of informed by other research of of what is important to musicians and then we followed up afterwards and did the measurements with the this eigen mic in the different venues so we got the the changes in the acoustics were by virtue of the fact that they're performing in different places and then we followed up afterwards with the measurements we we weren't sure whether we were going to get good results because if you're playing in the major concert halls the major venues possibly everything's got good acoustics it turns out that not everything did but but you know, one of our fears, but everything would have would have good ac- acoustics, and we weren't going to learn anything useful f- from it. So the the Australian Chamber also have a group called the ACO Collective, which is a sort of younger version of the ACO, and they were doing some a, a similar tour, but in regional centres, in, in not in the capital cities, but Wollongong, and Canberra, smaller venues like that. And we did a follow up survey with them, and also did measurements in those places, which we. Th- Figured we're going to be a lot more variable, and but it, as we got good results from both sets of data, so that was really interesting.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really great study design, like really pragmatic, but also it uses a lot of quite diverse research methods, like to come up with surveys that are great for people to answer is actually really difficult, but then also having the objective measures of how the acoustics are playing out is very cool.
2: Yeah, it it's not the subjective side of it is not often done in engineering. We we tend to engineers tend to do you know computations experiments things like that but to to actually it's called it's a branch of acoustics called psychoacoustics and yeah it's really interesting to do that within an engineering context
0: yeah it also kind of touches on something that sarah's raised on the show a number of times before about being like user-centric or focusing on the person that's actually using the space and it says so it's really great that you've brought that in right from the research process and combining those two areas Stick with us for part three, folks, and we'll delve more into acoustic design of concert halls.
1: You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we are talking about acoustics of venues. My name is Sarah Leiden and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Damian Holloway. Uh, so in this segment we just want to kind of move away from concert halls and talk about venues that our listeners probably spend a lot of time in. And so Damian, we were at an event recently where we were having a lot of difficulty hearing what other people were saying. What factors in that environment were contributing to that and are there any ways that that kind of you know function space could be redesigned for a more inclusive uh, experience for people
2: yeah well it's interesting because i walk into these venues and hear how awful it is and my brain automatically starts looking around and thinking of things but in that particular space you know there are these hard sandstone walls which i guess look nice and trendy but they're very reflective and i looked up at the ceiling and there's this sort of um a frame sort of ceiling which is is like a like a lens that focuses the sound back rather than scattering the sound and and the floor was also fairly hard. What a space like that really needs in order to get some some clarity to it is is some surfaces that are absorbent. You don't need to do away with the the sort of nice architecture of it, but you know the the choice of carpet. You could you could put wall hangings that are rather than paintings with with glass on them. You could have. You know, a nice oriental rug with a wall hanging, hanging or something like that, which would absorb some of the sound. And you could put reflective surfaces and that tend to scatter the sound rather than focus the sound. So I talked about the Sydney Opera House, how the, the lights were redesigned. You know, so it can be something like that that people wouldn't even notice, but it would help to scatter the sound. Yeah, but there, there's an interesting thing called the the cocktail party effect or cocktail party paradox where there's a perception that you conversations are more private in spaces that are more reverberant so you often in restaurants and places you know they have this very very noisy reverberant sound but what happens in a reverberant space is that your sound can be heard right across the other side of the room whereas in a very absorbent space your 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 voice is only heard locally and and so even though we can hear it more clearly ourselves we're afraid that other people can hear it but it's that's not the case. We actually get more privacy in 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 more absorbent venues as long as there is some kind of background noise.
0: That is really interesting. Do you think that um, that that's common knowledge? Because for me, that strikes me as something that seems really simple, but it's often like I, we've all had that experience where you go out for a dinner and you're like really close to people and it just feels like you've got a whisper, but then you can't hear each other because of all the background noise. And I just, I find that such an overwhelming experience. And I've often been like, surely we have a solution for this. And it sounds like, Damien, you have the solution. <laughs> but do, are people aware when they're thinking of restaurants or... No,
2: no, not at all. I mean, most, most architecture occurs without input from acousticians um, um, I, I think it's changing. My brother works as a school teacher in Queensland and and I've been into some of the classrooms here and, and the design i mean the modern newly built classrooms have clearly had input from acousticians and I can t- see walking into the space some of the treatment that they've got on the walls and the ceiling and the the, the ground. But, you know, going back to my school days, you know, you would never have it would just be a box with tables and chairs in it. So I but it's definitely not well known.
0: Yeah, it's probably the secret to having the right ambience, I reckon. It's like what those people have managed to stumble on getting it right, maybe by chance, maybe by intention, but who knows? Well, I hope you've enjoyed the show for today. Thanks so much to Damien for being our expert guest and to Sarah for organising another fantastic engineering episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did love the show, get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support Community Radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services, and training to commercialize new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.